from the ACLU. This is At Liberty. I'm Molly Kaplan, your host. Here at the ACLU, we've been working remotely from home since the pandemic closed our offices in March 2020, which means this podcast is produced, recorded, and edited using high-speed internet. Even our guest participation depends on it. COVID-19 has underscored just how crucial an internet connection is to participate in society. But many people like you and me may take for granted having efficient and affordable broadband access, a privilege that tens of millions of Americans are without. This is the digital divide, and it disproportionately impacts people of color and people living in rural communities. High school students Kimberly Vasquez and Yashira Valenzuela Morillo, or Yoshi as her friends call her, know the impact of this divide well. Poor access to broadband impacted their ability to attend school and do homework in the pandemic. I'm actually a subscriber to Comcast Internet Essentials, the 995, and I've been so for five to six years now. And so I didn't see anything wrong with it pre-pandemic wise because I would come back home from school late. I'm usually always doing something. And by that time, my sisters were done with their work. I was really the only one using it. That's Kimberly. She lives with her family in Baltimore, Maryland, where Comcast has a broadband monopoly. Her family subscribes to Comcast's Internet Essentials Package, an affordable option designed to support lower-income families. But her internet speeds on that package were too slow for her to fully participate in remote school during the pandemic. I was seeing a problem when at the end of the school year of 2019 to 2020, where I was having issues with going into Google Docs. I kept on being disconnected. And then during the summer, my little sister, I have two younger sisters, she was going to summer school and I was going into meetings and I was struggling to go into the meetings and it was only us two. And I had another sister who was not using it at all. And so I already realized that this was going to be a problem for the next school year. It was difficult hearing Comcast representatives falsely promoting this package when at best it only provided internet for one or two devices and them claiming that this was high speed. But it didn't seem high speed to me if I couldn't get online at the same time as my younger sister. That was not fair at all for them to tell me that it was probably because I had 20 devices plugged into one outlet, which in my neighborhood, if I did that, I would have no electricity. So I don't think that's the problem. And uh, quite in fact, it was a lot of blaming it on me and on customers than really looking at their service and really seeing maybe it isn't good. They had increased actually their speeds in the beginning of March 2020, I believe, to the FCC's classified broadband speeds for high speed, which that report was in 2015. So they were already behind either way. And for them to just do that increase just because of the pandemic is really worrying of a five-year difference of technology and as well with the urgency of being online and obviously creating internet as an essential thing for everyday life. Kimberly and her friend Yoshi are both organizers with SOMOS, students organizing a multicultural open society. When the pandemic hit and Kimberly was struggling with her internet, they decided to push for better broadband access across Baltimore. Kimberly and I were asked to speak at a hearing 
that ultimately got $3 million from the Baltimore Children and Youth Fund to be sent to Baltimore City Schools to provide internet access and devices to students in the city. From then, we continued to partner up with the Baltimore Digital Equity Coalition. And as a whole, we decided that there's more that needs to be done in the city. There are millions of students, not only in Baltimore, but across the world who currently do not have access to devices and good quality internet. We planned press conferences. We attended other online press conferences with so many other nonprofits across the country, you know, with Chicago, Pennsylvania, and we earned, um, we garnered a lot of support, grassroots support from the people in Baltimore City and across the country. And with a lot of effort, we pushed Comcast to make the changes that we are currently seeing today. It was kind of in a position because they had to. I mean, this was getting coverage in the BuzzFeed, in New York Times. It was getting crazy here. And so when we're putting so much pressure on them, there's only so much they can do to defend themselves. And so I can personally say as an Internet Essentials customer, even the doubling of speeds, I'm still having problems. And I believe it's because they only increased their upload speeds two megabytes per second. And that's what you need to go into video conferencing. And obviously right now with everything online and as well with video conferencing being such a daily task, there needs to be more upload speeds. And it's worth noting, Kimberly, that right now you are working off your phone because your computer can't get enough internet access. Is that right? Yes, that is totally right. I actually even purchased a portable charger because now I have to be on my phone, even for classes. It's really crazy. And as well, I use my own data a lot of the times in order for my sisters to use the internet for their classes. Comcast has yet to fully meet the students' demands, but it's their effort and tenacity that put the digital divide front and center in their community. A welcome change, according to Dr. Brandeis Marshall, an expert in data science and equity. Oh, my goodness. These students, I think, are rock stars because they needed access to education. And they took it upon themselves in order to achieve their goal. And they understood that what they needed was broadband. And then for that one student who, ne- who didn't have enough quality broadband, needed to then go the extra step in order to latch on to broadband via phone. And this is a story that is pervasive to me across the country, because when the pandemic hit, everybody was closed into their house. They were no longer in communal spaces that were designed for education and learning. And Dr. Marsher, can you help us understand the nature of the problem? Because for some people who are living in more remote areas, it's a problem of hardwire access, right? But for Yoshi and Kimberly, the two Baltimore students, they were in Baltimore. Like it wasn't like they were in rural Montana. So how do you understand the sort of multifaceted nature of this problem? Yeah, so I understand it in three levels. The first level is just access to broadband, just getting broadband in every corner of our country. That's the first level. So there is problems if you're in a rural location of getting broadband because the broadband doesn't reach you. That's the hardwired. 
right? They just don't have the, the cabling in the systems in order to go there, right? So that's level one. That's like Montana, as you were mentioning. Level two goes to the quality of that broadband. So just because the broadband gets to your location doesn't mean that it is usable. So try to stream a show <laughs> in a location that has broadband, but it's very low. If you go to certain places in Louisiana, you can get broadband, but that is going to be a spinning dial for a while. And if multiple people are using the same broadband, you have disruption of service. So this is what happens if you have a family quarantine in their house. There's multiple people. They have, you know, adults who are trying to do remote working. And then you have the children and learners trying to do remote learning in there, right? So you have too many. So that's quality of broadband. That's level two. Then level three is a whole nother one, which is affording that broadband. So as the students you mentioned went through, they went through each level. They did. The first level was like, we don't have broadband. We're in a major city. We need broadband. Then level two was like, oh, this broadband isn't as good. <laughs> and so the one student had to like literally find a different way in order to get access to broadband. And then level three is there had to be some way of paying for it. Well, and one interesting point that came up with the students is that they were paying for the most basic plan that was available. And what they found in the process of working with Comcast or advocating for Comcast to give them better internet services is that Comcast wasn't giving them the FCC required upload and download speeds, which RPS already like five and a half years too old. So at their payment plan, what they were being given was completely inadequate. Right. And this is happening everywhere. And not everybody understands that there are these three levels. Right. Everyone just assumes if I have the internet, then I'm going to be able to do all the things I want to do. Not understanding or knowing that there is a certain amount of bandwidth. If you think about what a learner has to do in order to complete an assignment or even view a lecture, they're going to need to be able to log into other applications and services in order to see the lecture. They have to respond. They have to upload, download information. They have to search for information on various systems. And if their textbooks happen to be online as well, then they're spending even more time online needing to access that textbook that they might be renting. It might not be a download to a machine. So that's all assuming that the learner has the computing machinery to handle everything. Right. And not all computing machinery is built the same as well. What was really interesting, too, about Kimberly and Yoshi is that this problem with accessing their education, basically, wasn't happening in isolation. They were also dealing with a parent who they were part of the Latinx community in Baltimore. They were dealing with parents who needed translation services, siblings who needed help with their homework. Their friends often have jobs, extracurricular activities. And I'm curious in your research how 
broadband access feeds into a larger larger inequities around economics, race, age, gender, and how to understand this problem within that larger ecosystem? You know, oh, that's a loaded question <laughs> because it's all interconnected. And what we like to do when we see a large problem is break it up into parts and then deal with each part separately. And we silo it. And we forget that these parts are all intertwined. So there is social, there is political, there is racial, there is gendered issues that all compound this conversation. So broadband is just one sliver of the issue. So individuals that have issues with getting access to broadband, they tend to be in lower income communities. And when I say lower income communities, I'm being very deliberate about that because the imaging of lower income communities tend to be black and brown. But that's not sometimes the case. It could be communities who are white, but rural. And yet that is also an economic issue because if they are in a low income community, they might not have the money to pay for the broadband access that they need. I'm also struck that we've been focusing on education, but when I think about it, you know, it's also about access to employment, access to services. Like if the government is offering aid, how do you access that aid if you can't fill out the forms that you need to online? I'm wondering if you have looked at areas aside from education that are affected by inaccess to good quality internet. Oh, yes. What you're just talking about, housing, there is definitely financial services. Just being able to fill out forms online, right? So even the vaccine, understanding how to make an appointment with a vaccine, that's why there's a lot of messaging around that. But that does require you do have access to broadband. <laughs> um, employment, if you happen to be someone who is unhoused or underhoused, how are you supposed to move in this society without having an email address or the ability to access your email account? So there are tentacles that are in addition to education when it comes to broadband use. But as it, to me, it's broadband is a core because if you happen to lose your job and you're trying to get another job, and you do not have broadband, what are you supposed to do? I mean, it's the definition of infrastructure, right? Like broadband are the roads. If you can't travel on the roads, you can't get food. You can't get to your job. I do want to ask you about the role of the FCC in all of this. You know, the FCC determined in 2015 that, quote unquote, broadband was an Internet service that delivered, I'm just going to say the numbers, 25 megabits per second downloads, three megabits per second upload. Clearly, listening to Kimberly and Yoshi, that definition seems radically outdated. Why hasn't the FCC updated its definition of what broadband is when our technology needs have so clearly changed? Okay, so let's put this in historical context. Great. So 2015, this is when the FCC came out with the rules, right? That's what you just mentioned. This is at the end of one administration. It's gearing up for another administration. And we had four years where an administration maybe didn't look too hard at 
making certain updates in timely fashion. So now we're in a period where we can start to make some adjustments. I mean, I think they're making some pushes to make some progress, but there's a lot still going on in the country. We still are in a pandemic, (laughs) right? If we focus on moving past the pandemic, right? If we focus in on getting that done, then we can really open up to have deeper conversations about what is the level. Because the level of where we need to be as far as the FCC regulations needs to be forecasting to 2025, 2030, 2035. Right. Things have to settle down. And getting back to an earlier point, you know, we're talking about speeds, but what you mentioned is that it's really a three-pronged approach that's required, or there is a need to address three separate issues. So it's not just the speed, it's also affordability and then infrastructure, like literally building out where we need it. And I actually read something, and I'm curious if you've seen this, that the map of where the holes are became much clearer during the pandemic because schools were having to literally plug individually for students where people couldn't access internet. And I'm curious on the infrastructure side, you know, where we are in terms of that build. We're not far. We're just not far. There is a whole number of other sub-issues that come up, right? To actually build the infrastructure, we need people skilled to do the building. Who is going to lay down the cables and put them underground to make sure that neighborhoods who have been completely isolated, completely in a broadband desert, can now finally get plugged in? That is literally digging into the ground to lay those cables and then securing those cables, and then turning it on, and then making sure those individuals can then know that they now have broadband service in their area, and then those people being able to pay for it. So this is a lot of different types of jobs that are possible. It's jobs. Don't the private companies have a role in this? Don't they have some of that skilled labor? Like, what is the interconnection between what the government can do and how private companies can help or should help? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a a hope. I I hope there is motivation for private companies in order to get on board with this, because that would possibly mean contracts for them in order to hire more individuals, in order to actually lay these cables and push it out to these neighborhoods that are broadband deserts. But then there is just the government itself that has to lay down cables, because there are certain places where, from my little bit of understanding. Corporations can't be digging. They can't be digging in the middle of a street that is a city street or a county street. So you need to have this collaboration and partnership between government and corporations to ensure that this happens. Absolutely. I'm also wondering, we've sort of skirted around it, but haven't directly it addressed Biden's American jobs plan, where Biden just proposed spending $100 billion on bringing affordable, high-speed broadband to everyone, and particularly to the 17% of rural American households who cannot get online. Is this enough? Does this plan do enough to close the digital divide? I believe it's a great first step. I think that after an investigation or evaluation type of report on what a quote average family of four uses in broadband a month. 
I think the number as far as investment from the government would need to shift and go higher. Hmm. Only because the current FCC rates are so low, we haven't made the adjustment to 2021 into what people are using when it comes to broadband. And so that 17% number that is quoted inside of the plan, I think is an underestimate. Because once we adjust for how people are really using broadband and the pervasiveness of their use and the capacity in which they need to have that use, the duration and the amount, so in both dimensions, I think we're going to see that number climb to, I think, more like a third. Oh, wow. It's like before the interstate was built. Hmm. Before the interstate was built, we had all these roads. It sort of connected (laughs) the country, but not really. But then once we got the interstate, it was like, oh, so every about 20 miles, we're able to now off-ramp into a different part of the United States. I think that is where we need to get to. So yeah, so my about a third is really based upon what I see in the ethos, not based upon any type of of number crunching. It seems like Congress is also trying to improve broadband. Can you tell us a little bit about that and the Accessible Affordable Internet for All Act? (laughs) Really rolls off the tongue. <laughs> it, it really it really does just kind of roll off the tongue. It does. It does. I didn't I didn't have to pause at all. So the act just to say what it does, it's really funds for around giving households who are struggling to afford broadband a stipend so that they can access it. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. It makes a good effort, but it's not quite clear that that effort is what the people need going forward, long term. Going forward for even now. Right. So has there been a fervent conversation with communities that would be most impacted by this type of initiative to be valuable to them? And this is a continual conversation that I think happens with, you know, underestimated communities and minoritized communities is that there is a solution pushed without engagement with the communities that it quote unquote intended to serve. So I think there, I think some people will definitely like, will love it. It will be great. But how are people going to know about it if they weren't part of the conversation from the inception? Right. So I heard about it. (laughs) I pushed it out to my networks, but of course my networks are digital. So I don't know how eligible my networks are in receiving that stipend. But the network that would actually need this information, is there a separate marketing campaign in order to get to those networks and then help people sign up because everything is digital? Right. Per going to a location and saying, hey, do you want to go ahead and sign up for this? I mean, could it have been partnered with vaccine locations? Or supermarkets or physical locations, because the catch-22 always with not being able to access broadband is that when you're trying to facilitate access is that often people need broadband. Right. You know, it strikes me, though, that while the pandemic and addressing 
tying broadband access to pandemic-related issues is incredibly short-term. On the other hand, it also feels like the pandemic has provided us an opportunity to prioritize broadband. And that, to me, feels different. We have a better sense of where the gaps are. We have a better sense of what the problem is. I think before the pandemic, you know, I hadn't heard from students like Yoshi and Kimberly. Their story was publicized everywhere because I think they didn't realize. I mean, Kimberly actually said, like, I didn't know it was a problem until, you know, because I would I did stuff after school. I got home late. I did a couple things on my phone and then I went to bed. And so, yeah, this pandemic is interestingly for all of its horror, has provided this narrow opportunity, I think. Yes. And I think to your point, I think the pandemic, if we can see anything good out of it, it is that the pandemic provides an opportunity to understand infrastructure, right? And then I wanted to bring up another point when it comes to legislation. Legislation goes through a process. What I want to caution when it comes to legislation is that legislation looks at data right now, but the legislation process lasts a year, two years, and then it's enacted, and then it's supposed to be executed over another two, three plus years. So if we're looking at broadband, going back to your FCC question, We have to not look at the data just today, but forecasting it out for, as I said, later on. Because if we don't look 5, 10, 15 years down the road, and that legislation is using data of today, we're going to be repeating the same deficiencies that is part of the current FCC 2015 legislation to think about the nuts and bolts of how legislation works. And when it comes to, it's not just broadband, when it comes to digital issues writ large, the legislation often feels 10 to 15 years too late. Because it is. Because when it comes to anything with tech innovation, you're looking at a year, maybe, depending on the industry. Every year things change. Sometimes it's even quicker than that. I'm curious, too, if you're a listener and you are struck by the problem and what needs to happen, what can you do to get involved? What can somebody who's not already in this field do to help? I think it depends on if you have broadband. <laughs> Fair. Fair it point. If you have broadband. If you, if you have broadband and you care, I think... It's a hard question because this is infrastructure. I think it is connecting with your local official and seeing if it's on their radar. So I definitely think there's mobilization on the ground that I think would be super important. I think it's also reading about the current bill, the job plan bill, understanding the acts a little bit. I think connecting, of course, with ACLU because this is high priority. So definitely resources are there to unpack some of this stuff, to have conversations with people that you know and to say, so what's your Internet like? Did you realize this? (laughs) Sharing the story of Kim and Yoshi, I think, would be powerful. But I mean, it's it's really being part of, I think, galvanizing your local officials in order to make this a party. Like if every county in the United States could put together what their broadband access 
truly is. That would be fantastic. For Kimberly and Yoshi, they know that they have a long way to go, and they are committed to this fight, even as they prepare to graduate from high school and head to college. My advice to other students who are currently struggling would be to reach out for help, like communicate with your teachers, with administrators at school, let them know what your situation is, let them know that you're struggling and come up with a plan where you you yourself can complete the assignments at a reasonable time that also works with your teacher. On top of that, don't stress yourself out too much. Kimberly, what would you say to students, also to students who really want to make a difference but don't know where to begin? Yeah, so actually, funny story, I was very shy. Like, I would not want to order anything at all. And it's really, people are get really shocked because they see me on the news and, like, talking about this stuff and going against Comcast. But I feel like what got me from going to shy to actually hopefully being unapologetically myself was having a platform, having other people that I could relate to. Somos was a platform for me to connect to other students who were facing around the same similar struggles as I was. And a lot of our members are immigrants or children of immigrants or uh, Latinx. And so there are similar issues that we face, all of us. And so that's already having the voice of groups that are minorities is great to put at the forefront because those are usually who get the worst of the worst, if I'm being fair, um, and as well as Black voices. And so for me, I've seen that a lot of students hesitate in putting out their story. And so I just want to say that your voice does matter. And so when you tell people that you don't have internet or that you can't access classes online, like, please let someone know. What would you say to President Biden and also the FCC who happened to be sitting right there with him? Yeah, so I would say, first of all, with the whole broadband access, I really would like to see a municipal broadband internet throughout the nation and first going in and to communities that are disproportionately cut off from internet. But at the end of the day, it does come down to students' right to an education. And so the matter of urgency is now. And so funding is a good place to go. But as well, as Yoshi said, talking to the community who knows what is going on, what they're facing, and probably, well, not probably, they know what's the best solution that will effectively help them. And Yoshi Kimberly, last of all, can you tell us what's next for you? Where are you going to college? What your plans are? I'll be going to University of Baltimore. I'm on a full ride, thankfully. <laughs> I will be um, studying public policy, ironically. <laughs> Very apropos. It's a part of their dual degree program. So I'll be getting my bachelor's and my master's in under five or six years. Kimberly, what about you? So I'm actually going to Goucher College and I am potentially majoring in political science. Funny story, I wanted to be a forensic scientist, which I could still do and do advocacy work. But this just has amazed me and sparked something in me that I, you know, steered into political science. But I'll be around here. I'll still be in Baltimore. That's what I wanted for college. So, yeah. And you two will not be separated. Oh, no, not at all. Different schools, same city. 
yeah, we're still going to talk every day. We're still going to keep working with, hopefully we'll still keep working with Somos and this campaign and continue doing all this work, hopefully not forever, but for, for, as, for as long as we need to. Well, Kimberly and Yoshi, thank you so, so much for speaking with us for all of your advocacy work. And I am wishing you so much luck graduating and for the future. I can't wait to see where I'm going to see your names next. I'm sure I'm going to see your names in the future. Yeah, thank you for having us as well. Thanks also to Dr. Marshall for joining us. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We always appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong.